Welcome to Tab's Two Cents, a show for average Joe investors where we talk finance and how to achieve success. Hi, welcome to Tab's Two Cents, the show where we talk about business, finance, and achieving success. Today on the show, we have Peter Sainsbury. Peter is an author of many books, including Commodities, 50 Things You Really Need to Know, and he is the producer and writer for the Carbon Risk Substack. Hope you enjoy the show. Peter, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jay. Thanks for, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, no problem. So I thought we could start the show if you'd want to just provide an introduction for the listeners or viewers as to your history and what inspired you to start Carbon Risk. So my name's uh, Peter Sainsbury. Previously, I'm a background as, a, as an economist. So I worked over a dozen years for a, an environmental NGO based here in the UK. And that was, for, that was very much to do with like, environmental markets and you know helping companies and governments with their environmental policy. And then before that, I was an analyst for an oil market consultancy. And during that whole period, I was kind of very much involved with you know, commodities, both as both as an investor and producing my own content. And so I've got a, a separate website called uh, Materials Risk, uh, which you know, it's my kind of conduit to sort of delve into some of those issues that, that I see in, in, the, in the world of commodities and, and, you know, macro more broadly. But then really, probably almost a year ago, I, I left my sort of the full-time job and had been, you know, started work on um, um, another book. So uh, one thing I haven't mentioned is, you know, the last sort of five years, I've written and published about four books, everything to do with, you know, commodities, commodity markets, you know, misinformation in the media, and also, you know, betting on Formula One. It's quite a difference of, uh, of topics there. But yeah, so I left left my job to, you know, to write. And so that, that book's, you know, made good progress. But then when it came to November last year, I was kind of getting a little bit, I guess it was all becoming a bit too much and I had to take a break from it. But then in doing that and, and in writing the book, I kind of realised what the actual opportunity was for me in terms of writing and, and from an investment perspective. And that was really to focus on, on carbon, you know, carbon markets. And that's, and that's really where we've got to today, really, is I've launched uh, a newsletter on Substack called Carbon Risk back in November. Um, and then since then, I've been you know, turning out sort of four or five articles a week on how investors should kind of navigate these markets, both um, the formal compliance markets like EU ETS, but also the, what people need to look at in terms of like the voluntary carbon market. Because I think there's certainly quite a lot of confusion about the different types of markets and what the potential opportunities are. That's great. So why don't we start from the start with that? Because that's really what I want to talk to you about is carbon markets, carbon credits, ETS, all that great stuff. So what is a carbon credit? Yeah, there's a a distinction between carbon allowances. So this is a almost a a permit to pollute or to emit a ton of carbon dioxide. And that's what you get on these formal compliance markets. So the the EU ETS, and there's markets in California and Northeast America, and then a a few elsewhere around the world, um, including like China and New Zealand. So those are formal regulated markets. So they're very different from the voluntary market, which as the name suggests, is completely voluntary. It's companies, you know, you hear in the news, like say Microsoft or Exxon, that look, they've committed to reducing their emissions or going to net zero at some point in the future. And in committing to do that, they've looked to offset some of the carbon as part of their company by purchasing credits, carbon credits based on projects elsewhere in the world. So these carbon credits could form, they could be sort of nature-based carbon credits. So like a reforestation of, a, of an area that's previously been cleared, or it could be a kind of technology-based credits where carbon is you know, captured from the, the atmosphere and, and locked into 
things like concrete or, or other technologies that can hold that carbon for a long period of time. But that, that comes with a lot of risk and uncertainty, really, because there's such a varying degree of quality. And so you've got to, the ideal standard is they've got to be kind of real, measurable, additional, so that they wouldn't have happened otherwise. And they've got to really know that carbon is locked in for a long period of time. So you don't just want to buy a credit related to a piece of, you know, say an area of forest, but then a year's time, you know, there's a fire and it all burns down and all that carbon's released back into the atmosphere. So there's a whole sort of sway of different credits. And that's kind of reflected in the price that you can, people pay for these, these credits and on the low side, uh, or perhaps, you know, the average is around maybe five to $10 a ton for these credits, but they, they stretch from, you know, cents per ton for very poor quality projects to, you know, $50 and, and above for, for very high quality projects. And that, so that's that kind of voluntary market describes what sort of corporates are doing, what companies are doing, and also might describe what, you know, some of your viewers or listeners might be doing with you know if they take a flight they might decide to offset the carbon emitted from that flight by by, by purchasing credits but there's also a third potential market for these voluntary carbon credits and that's the governments so over the last 10 20 years governments have committed to cutting their emissions you know approaching net zero and up until recently it's very difficult for them to you know they had, they had to almost do everything within their own country but from the climate conference last year you know cop 26 you know, re- you know regulations have been put into place that now are approaching a point which enable governments to actually buy offsets from other countries the reason why this is good from a climate perspective is it potentially reduces the costs of cutting emissions. And it also presents potentially for investors is a you know, massive market that could potentially grow. You know, the corporate market is maybe about 100 million tonnes at the moment, but the, the, you know, the government market could be you know, multiple times you know, bigger than that um, in the future. Yeah, it's really interesting the developments that came out of COP26, especially when you talk about international markets and Article 6 and what they've yeah. done there. And I, that's actually something I wanted to ask you about is how do you think that's going to affect carbon pricing? Because in Canada, for example, we've got mandated by law $170 carbon by 2030. And then I know in Germany, they've had a 60 euro base. They just started, yeah. to, they wanted to do a a bottom of $60 in their market. So I, I don't know how these are going to all float around internationally. What do you think? Yeah, that's right. So it's encouraging in one sense that you've got countries committing to carbon taxes. To some extent, that might just focus on particular sectors, these taxes, whereas some countries like you might use emissions trading to put a price on other parts of the economy. The, the problem with taxes is that you know, it's a government price. You know, so someone, a uh, civil servant has said, you know, $60 a ton or, or whatever is a, is a viable price to incentivize decarbonization. Rather, on the other hand, I certainly believe that markets, you know, through emissions trading is a much more effective way of putting a price on, on the cost of that externality. The, the other thing to think, to think about is that you've got a lot of different approaches everywhere around the world. And what that might mean is you get industries moving to places where the cost of carbon through taxes or emissions trading is, is lower. So yes, problem known as uh, carbon leakage, where you know, industries might decide not to invest in, in Europe, for example, and they, they decide to invest somewhere else where you know, the, the cost of that carbon commitment is much lower. So you know, what you really want to get, I think it will come to this in the next sort of 10, 20 years, is a kind of a global carbon price. You know, at the moment, you've got lots of different competing politics, you know, different places around the world, even within certain countries. But I think as, you know, countries um, start to put border taxes around their regions or around their countries to kind of protect 
low carbon or products that haven't been subject to a carbon tax from entering their countries, then I think that will increasingly put pressure on other governments to introduce carbon pricing as well. So I think we're, I think we're still at a very early stage in, in how these markets are developing. And I think, you know, as that political pressure grows, you know, there'll be more and more different markets emerging around the world. Yeah, that's definitely something that I've wondered about because here in Canada, our province, Quebec, is linked with the California market. So right. they trade within each other. And it's, you know, the more markets that continue to link with each other, then you're just sharing the same. And we're talking about mandatory markets, but yeah. they're just trading the same credits between each other and that whatever the price is, that's what it is for those. Yeah. But just moving over to voluntary markets for a minute, what do you think about ESG trends coming up with investors and how that's going to affect companies, especially if they need to start showing carbon emissions on their balance sheet? I think in terms of, you know, emissions, um, you know, formal emission allowances, you know, as you get in, you know, the EU ETS and, and the carbon market, uh, the California market, you know, they, they can be assets on a on a balance sheet. So companies can you know, treat them that way. And increasingly, I think you're getting companies who actually you know, recognize that their carbon commitment is going to go up in price in the future. So they're actually buying more allowances now than they need just to put them on the balance sheet for, for the future. But then, yeah, I think if you think about the financial opportunity involved with ESG investing, you know, the cost of the commodities that go into, you know, producing um, like a windmill, there might be other um, kind of incentives, you know, around, uh, you know, providing renewable energy. But there's also the, you know, the carbon cost, either the avoided carbon cost, that, you know, by supplying that renewable energy. So that that's, that's something for, I think, companies will increasingly factor that carbon cost into their investment um, opportunity. Yeah, I've seen lots of companies who have started to come out with carbon pricing programs. Yeah. And they have, for whatever reason, they have either reduced their own <laughs> emissions or they have provided a service to other companies where they can reduce their emissions. Mm -hmm. And as a result, they can get carbon credits in return. And I wanted to ask, which industry do you think will be a leader, at least in the early stages, for carbon credits? Because I think for me, I see industries like oil and gas and everybody thinks, oh, those are dirty industries, mm -hmm. but they have a lot of room to cut back. So then they mm -hmm. can you know, based on their allowances, they could they could earn some credit. Yeah, I think I think, um, I think that's a good point because I think where it's really sort of starting to take off at the moment is in the the LNG market. Um, so you know, particularly in places like Japan and, and Southeast Asia, there's a you know they they, they rely heavily on, on 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 natural gas and anything they can show that that gas is carbon neutral. You know, people are willing to pay a premium for. Um, so we're starting to see. I think it was something like twenty to thirty LNG cargoes in the past year or two have been sold. As, as carbon neutral and I think as, as you say you know increasingly companies like the Exxon you know committed to net zero and you know uh, carbon credits were part of that the way they were going to try and meet that commitment um, I think it, it, again it comes back down to partly down to quality you know are those genuine offsets and I think the other thing to bear in mind is you know what the scope of those emissions that they're looking to offset is it just the emissions within their supply chain or things that they can actually control or is it the actual you know scope free being you know, the downstream emissions you know by by the actual users that they're they're looking to offset as well it's good because for a, like a, an energy company those scope free emissions can you know be so much bigger than the actual scope one and scope two emissions so i think that's, that's something for, for investors to be really aware of when they see you know energy companies make these commitments yeah the distinction between net neutral and net zero i wonder if you could talk about that yeah it really kind of comes down to you know kind of the definition of what they're looking to achieve whether it's this kind of within their their own supply chain you know are they looking to actually just offset their emissions or are they actually looking to reduce their emissions 
that they can control you know, to, to zero or, or very close to it. There's so many different definitions going around. And I think that's there's an element of confusion, I think, among both investors and the wider public about what actually companies are actually committing to do. Yeah, they, they really need, need to make it clear when they say we're going to be net neutral or net zero that we're going to be net zero scope three emissions or we're mm. going to be net zero scope two. But even yeah. then, it still gets complicated. There's a few visualizations out there that kind of clears things up for people when they talk about yeah, yeah. scope one, two and three emissions. Yeah. Something I wanted to ask you about, you recently sent out a blog about why the EU ETS is the best regulated mm. and best mandatory market currently. I wonder if you could just talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so it's so it's been going for just over 15 years and it's had a lot of time to kind of iterate and find out what went wrong, you know, and, and try and improve that over time. So it's gone through a number of phases. I think it's in the fourth phase now going through the 2020s. So it covers about, I think it's about 40% of total emissions within the European Union. And, and that's looking, that's going to be expanded over the next few years while, you know, shipping, transport um, and other parts of the economy are, are included as well. But I think more broadly, I think it, it's, they've approached it from very much a, a market-based system. So it doesn't have a, a minimum price or, or a maximum price by which the price of emission allowances will range. It, it, they've left it really up to the market to decide what, what the, the correct approach is. And that's really why I think it's, it's the best market. And I think we'll probably see the best outcomes from it from a from a climate perspective going into the future because unless you've got you know the market deciding what the actual right price of carbon is you are likely to get you know resources are going to be misallocated you know in investments will you know people might invest in the wrong thing and so i think i think that's possibly a lesson for other emissions emissions trading schemes around the world you know particularly those in north america to hopefully you know look at you know what's going on in the european market and then take advantage of some of those those trends yeah, and you've mentioned that the UK market could actually be a good indicator for global market. Yeah, or, or certainly for for what the European market could do. You know, the UK left Europe and or the European Union set up its own emissions trading scheme. So you know, by very its very nature, it's much smaller in terms of emissions. But it's because there's an additional carbon price outside of the emissions trading scheme that is on top of that the price they pay. You know, companies in the in the UK are already paying roughly sort of fifteen to twenty euros per ton more than what's what companies in Europe are paying. And so if the UK is happy, you know, companies are content, they're not complaining to their politicians about, you know, the high price of carbon. Um, I think that is a quite a good indicator that companies in, in Europe are probably not going to be complaining as well. So it, it really kind of gives confidence that, you know, we're unlikely to see any major changes in Europe that waters, you know, that water down the rules. Yeah, that's interesting. It's obviously then in the UK, it's at a sustainable price, even though it's, you know, 15 or 20 euros, as you say, yeah. higher than the EU ETS. I wonder if that has something to do with the strength of the UK's economy, because it's just one little strong country. And in the EU, maybe it'd be more difficult for some of the smaller countries to keep up. Yeah, I think it's, it's partly to because of the, it's a, you know, it's a relatively small amount is traded. So it's, you know, it's less liquid in terms of the market. And so you are get, getting um, kind of a wider you know, spread in terms of prices that are being offered and that's partly resulting in that in that higher price but also you know the uk has, has kind of got a slightly more aggressive target in terms of emissions reductions as well so i think that's probably filtering into the price that um you know the uk does deserve a higher price based on that on the rules that, that are set 
Yeah. So one thing that I wanted to bring up with you, when I first started looking into carbon credits for me, it was back just recently in last June, and it was a podcast with Marin Katusa. I don't know if you've seen any of his stuff, but he was talking a lot about cost of capital and green bonds and companies that are going to start buying offsets so they can fall into an ESG rating, which they yeah. can then get cheaper debt. So I wonder where do you think that's going to go? Yeah, so I think that I think that's right in terms of you know companies are you know, increasingly being rated on their on their ESG credentials, and I'm not I'm not necessarily familiar too much about whether the green green bonds or any other kind of finance take account of what carbon credits a company has. Again, come back to that sort of cautionary note I mentioned earlier on that if a bank or other other investor doesn't know the quality of those carbon credits, then you know potentially they could be taking on more risk if that company feels that yeah, they've offset their contribution. We're not going to actually bother doing anything with our own operations. We're just going to carry on as before because we've paid that offset. And so yeah, potentially it potentially opens up a whole can of worms where you know these companies think they might be getting, you know, we've done all our, our bit, we can get a better, cheaper finance, but actually, you know, the risks to the, the financial institution have actually gone up. So yeah, I think it, I think it's probably early days. I can see where he's coming from, but again, it's just it's just how it is it, how is it approached? Is it is it properly audited? And and I, and I guess that I guess that point and the earlier points I've made kind of come back to I think where I think the the opportunities are really for investors in in, the, in this sort of voluntary space. And that's probably the kind of you know more the sort of picks and shovels of, of how this space could develop. Yeah, you because know, it's still at such a very early early stage. And so I think maybe companies that are looking to you know, develop exchanges on you know, carbon neutral commodities. Yeah, you know, I mentioned that LNG earlier on, or you know, companies that are looking to almost like a sort of ratings agencies of, of carbon credits that can actually you know go through them line by line and then you know, stamp you know whatever kind of rating on that that particular project. I think that's probably where the opportunities are going to be. That's interesting. I know there are some blockchain companies that are working on creating a blockchain for carbon credits. And then yeah. I'm assuming somebody like Vera or one of the authenticators would add them to the blockchain. Yeah, potentially. I think, yeah, there's, I mean, there's companies, I think like uh, I think it's Avax. Avax Technologies in based in Singapore that's um, a, a kind of an exchange for carbon neutral commodities. And then I think you mentioned yeah, in terms of sort of blockchain solutions, I think there seems to be an announcement every day of a new company that's trying to kind of go into that space. So I, I think you know I can see where the potential is, but I think we just I guess it just is. I'm just a little bit concerned that we're adding a, an extra layer of complexity on something that's already very com- complex. You know that might mask all you know all manner of low quality projects within that whatever's whatever that's um, that solution is trying to package up so yeah it's early days but maybe it's gonna be interesting to see how that develops yeah and even for people who are in the space they're generally kind of wondering like how am I going to get exposure what's the best credits as you say sometimes they can say they're good and then they turn out not so good so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about a few options that investors could have if if they believe in the carbon industry and they think that they can see prices rise yeah so I mean from um in terms of the voluntary market you know for the reasons I've, I've described there there isn't really a way to play the actual value of those voluntary carbon credits well I mean I guess that's not strictly true there are kind of sort of carbon streaming companies that kind of package up these you know carbon offset projects enable them you know that to be sold to corporates around the world that are looking to you know meet their net zero contributions so i mean that, that is an option but i think i guess investors need to be aware that you know there's that risk underlying risk of what actually is being sold but i think i think a purer way of playing an actual you know, rise in the price of carbon 
you know, if you believe that governments are committed to meeting net zero agendas, you know, decarbonizing their economies, then the, the purest way of playing that is to, you know, is to really invest in a, you know, one of the formal compliance schemes. You know, either, you know, the EU ETS is, is as I mentioned, is, is, the, is what I believe is, is the best and most well-regulated reg one in the world, also with the best, you know, kind of upside potential. Um, but there's also, you know, markets, you know, like, as you mentioned, the California and Quebec market where investors can access. And then, uh, you know, there's other markets around the world that, you know, are catering to more, you know, kind of a, a sort of domestic or regional audience. So there's a, a market in South Korea that I think is open to, you know, investors there. And also, you know, New Zealand as well. There's a carbon fund that's related to their emissions trading scheme, which I think is only open to, you know, residents of New Zealand. So, yeah, there's lots of different options, but I think it's, you know, it comes down to what, what you're actually trying to play in this market. Is it the the rise in the price or is it the potential growth in the voluntary carbon market yeah and for me personally i've got exposure to euas through krbn the etf that's the oh, green yeah. shares global carbon etf but there are other options out there i wonder if you could just talk a little bit about ways that people can actually technically go through the yeah. motion of investing yeah so there's so the the, the krbn fund you mentioned you know invests in carbon futures yeah, it's a basket of carbon futures across different exchanges. I think around two thirds is EU ETS, maybe 20 odd percent is the California Quebec market. I mean, there's a few other bits in there as well. There's a uh, also supplied by or provided by Crane Shares as a an EU ETS specific market. And um, you know, in comparison to the KRBN market, it's it's absolutely tiny. So you, you know, liquidity in that market might be quite quite difficult. You know, if you, you know, you're just looking at looking at it as a sort of short term investment. And um, there's a company based in the UK or li uh, listed on the UK London Stock Exchange, which allows uh, investors to access you know physical carbon allowances. The most ways you can get access to it is via futures, but this company actually means you can um, access you know, the physical allowances. Uh, and by buying now those allowances, you're actually taking them off the market. So you're actually helping to create that scarcity of allowances, which should push up the price. And then some of the other markets, there's the, um, or products, there's the GRN product, which I think I'm right in saying it's a, it's more of a kind of an exchange traded note. So it's got potential other risks involved, you know, from a, a counterparty risk that, you know, investors need to take account of as well. And then the, I guess the final one, which, because I'm, I'm based in the UK and it's a, you know, market that I can access is the spread betting market. And so some of your, you know, listeners might not be too familiar with spread betting, but it, you know, really allows investors to, you, you know, basically access lots of different futures markets by placing a almost like a bet, say $100 or 100 euros per movement in the actual price. So what it allows you to do is, you know, it's, it's almost like a leveraged product. So you're, you don't actually have to put down the full amount, you know, as if you were actually investing in the market. And then from, from, from the perspective of a UK resident, it's tax free as well. So that's, a, that's another upside. That's always an added bonus. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> One thing that I'm still a little bit confused about is when you talk about the physical carbon allowances, so far, the only way that I've been able to get exposures through futures with the ETF KRBN. And I know that lots of these markets, you have to be accredited investors to get into them is the way that I understand it. Because China has their own ETS, but yeah. they're only letting in so many people. So it's not like I can go buy a China future credit right now. So when you buy a physical carbon allowance, it just gets erased or can you send it back into the market? Yeah, so I, the, the name of the company that provides that product is, you know, escapes me at the moment, but there's a, um, in the EU, EU market, there's a total number of allowances that are, are, are potentially available, you know, available to emitters that 
need that that allowance to meet their obligation so if you bought it and you've taken it off the market it's not available for them to use which means that you know they're fighting over what's remaining so that potentially could help push up the price but then as you say you know when you actually sell that if you come to the point where you're selling that physical allowance back into the market you know that increases the the supply you know at some point in the future so what we're saying is it's not just investors that are you know buying these physical allowances and banking them for the future it's it's utilities it's you know, obligated industries uh, industrial companies that are, are saying you know the, the carbon price is going to go up in the future the, the scheme is getting you know the, the balance is getting tighter and tighter in the future carbon prices are very likely to go up in the future the best thing we can do to hedge that exposure is to buy the physical allowance, keep it on our balance sheet, and then you know it's there for the future. You know, should we need it? You know, and if not, you know, the price should be should be higher in the future. Yeah, and something that I found really interesting was that every ETS has its own kind of rules that they play by. And that's obviously where some of the confusion comes from. But what I've noticed is that certain ETS systems allow for the banking of credits indefinitely, like the EU ETS. But then other ETS systems, they say you've only got eight years to use it. So it's kind of diminishing mm-hmm. supply in that regard. And offsets have different timelines as well. So, yeah. I mean, it's really interesting in those markets to t- kind of try to navigate. And I think that's maybe why the EU ETS is doing so well. We're almost at 90 euros today. I, I don't know. Yeah, if maybe, right. I don't know if maybe you have something to say about that at the banking periods. Yeah. So, yeah. So it goes back to my earlier point, I think, in terms of if you can bank them and hold them for a long period of time, you, you can hedge that future exposure and from the point of view of decarbonizing your economy that gives you know investors confidence they've either hedged their exposure or then they can actually put that on their balance sheet you know can show that to investors they can then invest to help decarbonize their company and in, in, in the broader economy so i think there's a, there's a real benefit to being having that ability in place but then from as you say from an, an individual investor perspective you need to be clear about what markets you know, have that ability and how different investors might react to different things happening in the market. Um, so, if, you know, for example, in the California market, there's a, a kind of a suspicion really that there's there's more allowances available in the market than the total ambition in terms of emissions cuts all the way through to 20, 2030. So what this means is that you could get to 2030 and you know, companies within the schemes, within the California scheme, have done absolutely nothing to meet their obligations. But all they do is just decide, here's our emission allowances. We've, we've met our obligation because we've got these uh, emission allowances. But what you know, I think potentially will happen is companies and investors have confidence that the price can only go up and that confidence has to come from government that, you know, the rules aren't suddenly going to change. You know, this is a, a long-term commitment. Then what they'll do is they'll hold those allowances on their balance sheet and that will just help drive the price up and it will just help, you know, incentivize, you know, decarbonisation as well. So it's, yeah, so there's lots of different things going on. You know, different markets have different rules, floor price, you know, ceiling prices, which you know, people need to be aware of. It's not just a case of the price can go two, three, four times higher. There are there are other things to take account of in, in different markets. Absolutely. So before I let you go, a, a lot of my viewers or listeners generally like to talk about energy. So I wonder mm-hmm. if we could just talk a little bit about coal, fossil fuels. I know there's been some people see the reduction in coal power as a headwind for carbon credits because they'll say, well, 
if they're not burning fossil fuels, we don't need the credits. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, the government also has the option to discard those credits and not release them into the market. So I wonder if we could talk a little bit about energy and where that's going, how it might affect carbon pricing. Yeah. So, I mean, just I I can talk about the experience in Europe is that went through the winter with, you know, natural gas stocks, you know, at very low levels for this time of year. Natural gas prices were really high, coal prices were high, but yet there was still an incentive for power generators in, in Germany and Poland and elsewhere in Eastern Europe to still burn coal, even despite the relatively high carbon price. Um, so I think you're, even though the carbon price and other climate policies are trying to get rid of, of thermal coal, um, you know, I, I think it's very unlikely that it's going to get rid of it completely. If you look at countries in Eastern Europe, there's a geopolitical context to consider as well. You know, they're trying not to be too reliant on natural gas from Russia. There's a domestic policy agenda as well. You know, a lot of you know, different regions are still very much, you know, the employment is still very much focused on, on coal. And so they don't necessarily want to, you know, get rid of those industries. It's very, you know, very politically difficult to do. And so, so I think, I think there'll always be a place for the, you know, fossil fuels, fuels, even, even, even coal for, for some time. And then, you know, as we're trying to move towards a, you know, a zero carbon economy, you know, there's this whole argument about, you know, the role of natural gas in, in enabling that transition. And so I think even the experience over the last year, and I think what we'll probably see over the next decade is that that's going to be a very turbulent, you know, volatile period, you know, as the supply chains develop and change and, and morph, you know, we, we've had well over 100, 100 years to form the economy that we're in at the moment. And we're trying to completely rip it up, change it, move to a completely different alternative energy source, which is less dense, you know, moving from a, a kind of an iterative process that's developed over a time to a kind of state mandated you know, energy source that's you know, we're trying to introduce over a certain fixed time period uh, in order to meet our, our climate ambitions. So that is going to be very disruptive um, to energy markets, but it's also going to be disruptive to carbon markets as well, both on you know in terms of higher higher prices, but also you know volatility as that develops as well. I think it's going to be very interesting in the next ten years, but there's also going to be lots of opportunities in, in different markets as well. Yeah, I think with that volatility, probably will come some opportunities. Last question before you go: something that I've really kind of struggled with is that a lot of people talk about the relation between natural gas and carbon price. And for me, I'm always kind of like, why is there such a, you know, push pull with those prices? Is it because as natural gas increases, it incentivizes fossil fuels? because it's, it's cheaper? Or what do you think is going on there? That's right. So um, higher natural gas prices relative to coal, you know, that encourages generators to switch to the relatively cheap or relatively inexpensive you know, thermal coal. But that, of course, has a, has a carbon price, uh, a higher carbon cost attached to it as well. And so there's that dynamic working as well. And also, you know, various interactions between you know, natural power price if you know, power prices go up, that sometimes incentivizes generators you know, to pay you know, to buy carbon allowances you know, when they can because they've got that additional margin. You know, lots of different dynamics going on that alter you know, the relative price of carbon. But I think the point to be made about that there is you know, we've seen you know, the EU ETS and other carbon markets have been very successful in, you know, in that coal to gas switching. There's still that element of it left, but the market is increasingly moving towards you know what's on the horizon. So it's not that gold coal to gas switching; it's the industrial decarbonisation, and that's the sort of bigger impact that's affecting the overall carbon market. You know, because the, the carbon price could be a you know, hell of a lot higher than that. Awesome. Yeah, there's certainly a lot to talk about and there's so many moving pieces and it's so new that it's, for me, it's a very exciting space. So thanks for coming on. If you want to just go ahead and let anybody know where they can find your 
products and yeah well the best place to find me either is um, on substack you know that's carbon risk or on twitter yeah, it's at peter sainsbury seven or carbon risk underscore and then you can find okay. the, you know, all links to all different books and products as well awesome well i'm definitely a subscriber and will continue to be and i'll thanks, look Joe. into those books as well so thanks for coming on appreciate it cool. thanks very much Joe is not a financial advisor and may have interest in the stocks discussed on the show, so do not take any information included within this podcast as a recommendation or formal advice. Thank you.